Well, good evening, everybody. We are uh, going to go ahead and begin tonight. We've got a really interesting one uh, in store for this evening, and one that I hope if there's any questions or any curiosities about this specific topic, because it is such a unique topic, because it is such a difficult thing kind of to grasp at times, because we're in the middle of it all, I would appreciate if there's any questions at all, you're welcome to post them up in the chat and have it uh, be able to uh, have me address any of those. Because I promise you, if those of you who are engaged in this live have questions or have uh, interests or anything like this that I'm missing, then you represent uh, several other uh, people, dozens, hundreds maybe, that have the same question or same concern um, and want the same whole uh uh, addressed, at least in in how I go this. I can't really anticipate all the questions, especially when dealing with something as bizarrely differentiated as postmodernity. Um, but hopefully, I can I can cover a great deal of the of the aspects of this worldview of this new kind of frontier that we're dealing with. A couple of uh, house uh, house uh, work issues here. Um, this will be the last church history class. Uh, for two weeks, uh, for um, for both uh, August uh, 16th and August 23rd, we will not be having church history class, uh, at least for the live. For those of you in the podcast, just understand there's going to be a you know a couple of week uh, break between lessons here. Um, my my wife and my uh, and two older daughters and I are going to be uh, on um, uh, out of the country for just a bit. And um, it happens to intersect almost exactly with both uh, with both classes. So um, we will be actually going to Rome for a week and uh, and coming back. And uh, I I gotta say is I hope to run into a number of things there that I get to share when I come back about church history. Uh, obviously, the Eternal City being a center place of all sorts of things that have happened, a lot of stuff that we've talked about, and. Um, and other things. So um, keep that in mind. Uh, so if you are planning on uh, being here next Wednesday or the next Wednesday after that, uh, the, the, the 16th and the 23rd of August uh, won't be here, uh, but we'll be back up and running on the 30th. Uh, and depending on how much we get covered tonight, we may take a second night on the 30th to discuss this topic, post-modernity and the church because it's such a large topic and it is so broadly being dealt with throughout the church um, that it's whether or not we cover it in a single lecture. I've never been able to cover it in a single lecture. So uh, we'll see how it goes tonight without a, uh, without, um, you know, those in the room asking questions and going back and forth, because this one uh, more than anything, the last few times I taught it when it was in person, had more interaction than any other uh, any other lesson that we ever had, um, because it dealt with so many issues that we see and are trying to understand how they work. Um, so, with that in mind, um, we will be doing that uh, at least tonight, and if not uh, on August thirtieth, and then coming in September, we're going to beginning uh, we're going to begin these deep dives that we've been discussing. Um, and, uh, I've got some really good ones that are, that are lined up again. If you have any specific requests for those, um, you are welcome to leave them as comments, uh, on the, on the YouTube channel. That's just youtube.com, uh, slash at church history and theology, uh, on any of the videos, uh, make comments on the live chat, whatever you want to do, just, 
suggest out any topics you would like to uh, like to have presented on. Uh, it'll make a little bit more sense when we get into there. So I've got plenty lined up, but uh, I would not uh, hesitate at all to move move one up uh, if somebody expressed specific interest in it. So um, keep that in mind. All right. So tonight, this is, I'm not going to say it's one of my favorite lectures, but I am going to say, I think it's one of the most helpful lectures uh, that we ever work through in church history, because there's so many things that go on in the church today that Christians are thoroughly confused by. Uh, and, and in some cases, we we don't really realize that we're confused by that. We just kind of think it's normal. And yet it seems confusing. It doesn't seem like it it comports to the reality that scripture com, uh, expresses, or it seems like it's such an exceptional thing. Um, and then we look at our culture and we start going, you know, there just seems to be this, this confusion all around us. And then that sometimes is brought straight into the church as well. And people don't really know how to address the questions. Um, we have... We have conflicting views of authority. We have conflicting views of worship. We have conflicting views of the purpose for which we are gathered. We have conflicting views about so many things. And most of the time, these conflicting views are tried to dealt, be dealt with inside scripture. And that's a good thing. One of the major issues, though, is not realizing the lens with which we are looking at all of these things, including scripture, uh, is very much. Uh, I'm not going to say tainted because that's a that's a that's a um, a value call. I, I'm going to say it's affected by the culture in which we live. When we look back at church history, we've seen many many times, right, where somebody addresses an issue and then they address it as if they are a 16th century Christian that lives in, you know, the Holy Roman Empire, for instance, or lives in the Papal States, and and we we look at that and we go. Well, that makes sense. You know, they, they would address it with a with a late medieval concept of how the world works with assumptions that we don't necessarily share, some assumptions that we do share. And so we try to understand their approach to life from their uh, zeitgeist, from their spirit of the age, from the from the world in which they live. Um, we are no different than that. I know in the modern world, we like to imagine that that we've we've gotten past all of that. We we we're unaffected. We just weigh things, uh, and we are not affected by any of these movements of culture. We are not affected by any of the uh, the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows. But that's not true. Um, the church is just as affected, and the people inside the church are just as affected as every other person in the culture. And so it really really helps to sit down and understand what are the things going on in our culture, in the West specifically, um, that are affecting us and the way we interact with our theology and the, the uh, expectations we have of the local church. Um, some of these things come from scripture, other things they just simply don't. And so how do we, how do we weigh whether or not this is something worthy of us or not? Um, as we finished off last week, we we finished off by talking about uh, kind of the the current state of evangelicalism in in America, um, being most likely a a movement that has stopped 
uh, like the, the term evangelical almost doesn't even have a unifying concept anymore, even though it has technical definitions, it doesn't seem to actually have a cohesive movement anymore. Not like basically the last 10, maybe 15 years. And so that's kind of just a, a an example and a jumping off point that we're going to have for tonight is that's not just true of evangelicalism. It's true of so many other movements in the church. Um, a lot of things have changed in the past 15 to 20 years. And for those of you who have been Christians for a uh, long time, can see some of that and may look at that and wonder, you know, is the church always making massive shifts like this? Are we living through an exceptional time? Um, what exactly is going on? Um, and where I finished off last week was to say that the anti-modernist trends that have been going on in our culture, this rejection of uh, the worldview that founded things like uh, the United States or um, the scientific revolution, or even the industrial age or capitalism or any of these types of things, that kind of rejection of all of this has worked its way into people's way of thinking. And Christians are not exempt from this. In fact, it has worked its way into Christian circles very much. Um, and in, in many different places, they have begun to embrace post-modernity without knowing what in the world it is. Don't worry. I'm using terms we will define them as we go forward. Um, postmodern theologies is really our topic for tonight. Um, it's it makes strange bedfellows with with gospel presentations. It really is um, bringing in a whole host of new issues for the church to wrestle with. Uh, whether you think postmodern theologies are a good trend or a bad trend is kind of irrelevant. The church is going to have to address them. Every, there is no way to avoid it, at least in the West. And so we're going to have to address it uh, and interact with it in some good way. Um, and I will say currently, the way that the church is addressing post-modernity is, is pathetic. We are not doing it well. Um, I'm, I'm going to lay out some of my opinions on this because, you know, in a church history class, while we're talking about current events, it's not history yet. Um, so we're kind of running into, you know, how ought we in the present, uh, make our church's history in the future better than its current trajectory. Um, that's kind of what we're going to be focusing on just a bit as well. So when we talked about modernity, uh, modernity and modernism, that, that kind of a whole bag of assumptions uh, that interacted with this idea of of the natural world being the the ultimate truest observable experimental transactional material world that we could actually make predictions about we if we could understand everything about it then we have no need for any questions anymore this whole idea Ken, you ask a question, you say, we also tend to think that we have achieved the pinnacle of history, both church and secular. You're exactly right. Um, I, it is it is a, an atrocious trend to study history as though we have finally arrived, like everything was just leading up to us. And if there's anything that I can ever instill in those who are studying church history, it, it's something I strive for often, which is to never, ever think about church history as though it's it's here's how I got to where I am. But it's to understand that there is a very long flow 
of church history of which I am part of, and there will be hundreds of years after me, if not thousands of years after me. And so that informs our responsibilities. There's been a lot of focus on a kind of, uh, in, in more conservative circles, a very escapist idea uh, of, of theology and of the end of the world being at any second. And so we don't have to think a thousand years down the road, um, you know, as far as for handing things down to the next generation, as far as for replication um, and, and continuing on, we have just as little respect for our future as we have for our past. And so, yes, Ken, I really appreciate that focus uh, on the idea that we aren't the pinnacle of history. We haven't fully, quote unquote, arrived. That's never the case until the new heavens and new earth as Christians. And, and notice what I say there. This is one of the things that, that, um, that the scriptures come back and normalize uh, our theology. It is not just that we are looking forward to the heavens, but the heavens and the earth. And it is not that we're just looking forward to the earth, but the heavens and the earth. And those are balancing effects to us because there's always tendencies to interact with one or the other at the expense of the other. In modernity, there was an overemphasis on the mind, or excuse me, um, on the mind, on reason, on materialism, and the earth. In postmodernity, which is the term we have for it now, we don't actually have a fully developed term for it. In postmodernity, one of the unifying principles of postmodernity is it is destroying, deconstructing, uh, uh, destroying, really is the best way to put it, what modernity put forward. And so as modernity was kind of this pendulum swing over to everything's naturalistic materialism, everything is about reason and logic and facts and self-evidentiary things in nature, even if it started out as nature is, you know, the second book of scripture, eventually the radical reform, uh, the radical reformation, the radical enlightenment shuffled off God and any concept of inspiration or miracles, the deity of Christ. So we're just going to go over here and say, it's all about the body. It's all about the mind. It's all about the self, uh, self-evidential uh, aspects about reality. Well, that oversold itself. It oversold itself. And one of the issues is in the late 20th century, post-modernity came in and says, look, that's too far. And post-modernity came back and it wasn't just a pendulum shift. It was a throwing of the pendulum to the other side, crashing it into the other side of the wall with the exact opposite claim. And when we start to understand that this is what has happened, it starts to make sense some of the things that are happening in our culture. In other words, it's not just the body and the mind that makes sense. They make spiritual claims where the body has no significance whatsoever in post-modernity. Where you will have things like even the transgender revolution that says, I am what I am in this more astral sense. I'm not what my body says I am. And, and Christians try to respond to that with modernist terminology saying, you know, oh, well, chromosomes this or, uh, or observation this or that. And we lose the gospel because we're just having a philosophical argument now. And modernity and postmodernity, the question isn't which of these should we uh, be a part of. The answer is we should be proclaiming the gospel and the scriptures that God gave us regardless of which culture we're in.
And we should not be looking at one or the other saying, this is the great answer to how we engage the world around us. There was a lot of anti-modernist trends that have attempted to coalesce. There really aren't that many. And if you're feeling a little bit lost in it, that's on purpose. We're, I'm going to clear it up here in a, in a little bit. But I want you to kind of feel the confusion of all of this. Because at the core of a lot of this, what assumptions we made about society and culture, about theology and philosophy, about how the world works, all gets pulled apart in little pieces in post-modernity. So when we when we look at, for instance, the world, what how is it that we're looking at it? Are we looking at it as something that is disaffected? My emotions aren't going to deal with this. It's just my mind. It's just my logic. I'm going to I'm going to address all of this. I'm going to figure it all out, just like a scientist will figure out the, the mechanism by which a medicine works. I'm going to figure out the world. Maybe I can even extrapolate that to ethics, morality even. I can, I can reason my way up to that, either on the, on the social side of things or on the observational side of things. I try something in a society, see if it works, test it, repeat, hypothesize. This whole concept, it gets, ex it gets extended out to every single area of life. That was modernity. It's, it's almost disembodied brains trying to look at the world and figure it out. And there were several theologies that were born out of that. Liberal theology comes out of that. And the reaction against that was another modernist theology, which was conservative theology. These, these types of theologies would be interacting with each other, trying to overwhelm each other with empiricism. One will come up and say, well, archaeology says this. And then the other will answer back, well, archaeology says that. Well, historical studies say this. And they say, well, historical studies say that. Well, literature studies, uh, back and forth, back and forth. A scientific approach to knowledge, even a scientific approach to ethics, a scientific approach to theology. At the end of modernity, each individual can establish objective truth for themselves. They can figure it out. If their mind just works right, they can get to ultimate truth. That was the promise of modernity. What happened was, to very quickly summarize, what happened was the modern world tried to destroy itself multiple times. The effect of the two world wars we've mentioned in passing before, I'm, we're not here in a philosophy class, but the effect that the world wars had on the modernist worldview is incalculable. The failures of it with eugenics, with saying using science, we can improve the human race. Well, we started losing our humanity by killing those that we thought were less valuable than us. The modern world in all of its scientific progress and all of its leap forward in technology started to cost us our soul. This, this is what people were truly perceiving is the, the overabundance of materialistic focus. And I'm not just talking about, you know, materialism. Like I, I just, I just want things and stuff like that. No, it's, it's saying that all that matters is stuff of matter. All that matters is, is matter. It's actually, it's in our language that way for a reason. And so 
one of the grave reactions to this is to say, look, it, it cannot just be that the only things that matter are physical things. There's got to be something more than this because we have seen that the failures to even define ethics and theology on the basis of matter is it leads to a place where we lose anything that makes us think that this is a good move. Instead of solving war, which is what the great hope of modernity was, we use scientific progress to advance horrible ways of killing each other in World War I. We made tanks. We made mustard gas. We made ways of killing people that we had never thought of before. And science was the way not only of progress to the future, but progress seemingly to a hell of our own making. And, and the atom bomb, the, the, the effects that that has on people, the, the way in which this stuff is just perceived by even just by the populace, by the Western world, by the world at large, is that the end of these things is destruction. And so what do we do with modernity? It gave us the scientific revolution. It gave us the industrial revolution. It gave us our rejection of kings and our establishment of things like parliaments and congresses. So we threw off kind of this pre-modern concept of the divine right of kings or what have you. And instead we'll go and we'll invest ourselves into um democracy. We'll invest ourselves into parliamentary rule. We'll invest ourselves into congressional rule. And that maybe that will be our saving grace. And in modernity, we're learning that the same abuses in those systems reflect the systems of the aristocracies that we replaced them. And so in post-modernity, we have a whole nother bag of tricks. Post-modernity looks at modernism and says, I don't want it. I don't want this anymore. Not only don't want it, I will I will meticulously shred it piece by piece. And postmodernity is doing a very good job at that. Now, I will say this, just from a Christian perspective, when I look at postmodernity and what it's doing to modernism, there's part of me that's okay with it because in the philosophical world, this is going to have to happen because modernity just is not a sufficient worldview. But on the flip side of it, the postmodern worldview is also not a sufficient worldview. It's defined entirely by what's against so far. And so you will see people to try to interact with postmodernism. And again, we haven't even gotten to a definition of it yet. So just bear with me. We see people interact with postmodernism as a, in a very dismissive sense, saying either it doesn't affect us, it doesn't mean anything, or on the other side, maybe this is a good thing. Or on the other side, it's a bad thing. The reality is, it's it's the milieu in which we're living in the West. And it's going to define a number of things going forward. There's a lot of people that try to argue, you know, this timeline, that time. I, I'm not really overly concerned about that. I am concerned more about how this is affecting the church, how this, uh, how this in, uh, I will just say it, invades informs, I'll be the nice way, <laughs> it informs our theology, 
it it uh, interacts with even the way that we gather together at church, how we perceive ourselves and our role in the world. Um, so let's kind of go into this. What is post-modernity? Let me talk about what it's not. It is not exchanging objective truth for relativism. That is perhaps one of the biggest myths about post-modernities. It is not relativistic. Um, and now you, you can probably be forgiven for assuming it is relativistic because it sounds so relativistic in the way it describes things. And when we when we talk about things kind of in passing, it's easy to misrepresent them. And so I want to be really clear with how I'm going to describe this here. Postmodern theologies and the postmodern movement, even in the culture at large, is not a pursuit of relativistic truth. And I, and I will say this is the main wrong response that Christians have had against postmodernity. Postmodernity does not deny the existence of objective truth. What it does deny is that the individual has the ability to fully grasp objective truth. It says, while there is objective truth, all we actually have is each of our own perceptions. And all of our perceptions are partial. The perception of truth will arise from a community described by some characteristic. Let me, let me pull that apart just a little bit. Postmodernism as, as a unifying concept of truth, any of these postmodern theologies or any of these postmodernist movements inside of all of these things, they will typically have this concept of truth defining a unifying concept. That is this. There is an objective truth about things. Two plus two equals four, for instance. But as far as for having a claim on exclusive truth claims. Nobody's allowed to have that, right? All we have is our perception. So for instance, uh, and I know it's, I know it's easy for people to make fun of something like this, right? But it's, it's a good example to use because it's a real life example. Um, and it helps describe this, right? Two plus two equals four. We've tested this even before the modern world. We knew two plus two equaled four. Um, this wasn't uh, a happenstance of, of you know, uh, you know, raising up rationality. No, it, it's kind of just one of these apparent aspects of the world. Two plus two equals four. But then we will see this rise of when a kid puts down on a page two plus two equals five, and the teacher won't come up and say that's wrong, get to the right answer, but they'll say something more along the lines of how did you get there? right? You know, what about your background? What about your situation makes you see two plus two equals five, right? There's strengths in that approach, but there's also weaknesses in that approach. But that kind of, in a nutshell, encapsulates this idea. You want, you look at this first grader and you say, how have you gotten to the place where you and your truth here on this, on this test is that two plus two equals five? How'd you get there? 
uh, kind of like the ultimate that we all hated in school of, you know, show me your work. How, how did you reason your way to that? This is, this is post-modernity, not, des not denying that there is an objective truth, but saying, look, maybe we don't fully understand two plus two equals four. Maybe there's, maybe there's another way to think about things. It's, it's trying to open our minds uh, to other people's experiences uh, to, a, to, to the nth degree. And if, if uh, let's take something less concrete than two plus two equals four, let's say something like, um, oh goodness, let's say something that we actually debate in culture. These, oh, you know what? Let's just take the LGBT thing, right? Um, because it's always in the news now, right? So, um, and, and for those of you who are in all of that, I want you to just listen to this as a, as an expression of postmodernity and an example of it, because it is undeniably an example of this someone comes up and says you know here is um here is my identity i am i am this uh, and it's something that doesn't to anyone else's eyes comport with their body when when they're making this claim on that something about their experiences something about their world something about their worldview expressed to them that this was an option or express to them that this was their reality. And so you will see that postmodernism will respond to that and say, that is your truth. Nobody's saying it's the truth. And I think that's where a lot of the communication breakdown happens. Nobody's sitting here saying it's the truth. They're saying that's their truth. And what, what, is, what is happening typically is people saying your responsibility towards somebody else's statement about their truth is to affirm them. Well, and then the typical question comes back, well, what if they're wrong? And the thing in postmodern thinking, and this is what's happening in our culture right now, is using the phrase that's wrong is perceived as an objective truth claim, which means you are trying to insist that your perception of truth is the objective truth and theirs is not you see it it, it it's it's putting anyone who makes uh, a distinctive claim like that into the oppressor category if if you answer back to somebody and say well but you're using words that mean something over here and the response is well that's not that word means to me and you can see that there's a breakdown in communication, there's a breakdown in society, there's a breakdown in how we address these things. Um, that postmodern concept is, and, and it's why all of these things are defined as part of a community. Uh, it has to come out of the community in a postmodern mindset because the community is just those who perceive truth, whatever it is, way up there um, or way over there or way under there, who knows what direction it is. Uh, the postmodern concept is a community is a community only because it shares a perception. And that perception equals truth. You say, what? How can a perception equal truth? I'm not talking truth, capital T. Nobody in postmodernity is claiming that. They're not saying it's just relativistic. They're not just saying it's it's this or that. What they're saying is perception is the best that we have. And nobody can argue with your perception. Kind of hard to talk to, isn't it? It brings a separation between 
observation and clarity. And it brings a separation between how we perceive these things versus how they truly are. Now, when we when we get into the weeds on this, we really have a hard time responding to this as Christians. And that is my main concern here. Obviously, this 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 class is on church history. And so we want to interact with postmodernity as Christians in the midst of church history. And so how do we understand this? And seeing as this is our culture, we really can't talk about it in a historical sense, at least for another hundred years or so. So I'm going to try to explain how we can interact with this well as Christians, because here's, here's one of the biggest problems that the church has right now in the West. We don't think postmodernity is going to be an issue, and it already has been an issue for 20 years, and none of us are prepared to handle this in any way other than just being modernists. Let me give you the example, right? Go back to this uh, this claim that someone makes about their uh, identity being a gender other than their body or something, right? You know, they say, "Well, I, you know, sure, I was I was born in this body, but my actual identity, my actual um, my perception—I'll just use postmodern terms—my perception of myself, my truth is that I am the opposite of that, right? I was born into a male body." But my perception of myself is in the feminine, so I will um, express to you that my identity is that. It brings a full separation between the body and the self-evidence inside that body, and it will draw a line of demarcation between that and the spiritual form of this person. In post-modernity, that separation must take place because in modernism, the body was all that mattered. How did we know what was male and female, for instance? How did we know what was man and woman, for instance? And you will get people, uh, unfortunately, you will get a lot of people, especially um, especially these days, uh, that are Christians, some that aren't Christians, but have just like a Judeo-Christian ethic that only answer back as modernists, right? What's what's the typical response? You know it. You've heard it, right? Yeah, where where someone who comes up and they they claim transgenderism is their truth. I was born into the wrong body or a, a body that does not comport with who I truly am. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a uh, I was born into a male body, but I'm a I'm I'm a female. Uh, gender, right? This this kind of disjointedness. The typical response is to sit here and try to argue it scientifically, right? Self evident truth claims. We're 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 going to we're going to express this. We'll say, um, you know, chromosomes, microscopes, anatomy, uh, physiology. Facts, logic, self-evidentiary, all of this. That's that's the modernist response. And I have heard so many Christians respond to the transgender movement that way, and it is a mistake. We are not trying to convert a postmodern culture back to a modern culture. Modernism was a mistake in the beginning, an overemphasis on the body at the expense of the soul. 
Postmodernism is an equal mistake, an emphasis on the soul at the expense of the body. But scripture, the Christian worldview, the church, holds both of them together. We do not want God's will only to be done in heaven. We also want it on earth. We do not want only there to be a new heavens, but also a new earth. We don't just want a new earth. We want a new heavens. All of this comes as a singular package. We are not just bodies, and we are not just spiritual. We are both. We were born into this world spiritually dead. Alive, yet still dead. Almost almost scripturally like this concept of, of a living body dragging around a spiritual corpse. And, and the scriptures even make this clear that the spiritual side that was dead was buried with Christ and has risen to walk in a newness of life. That we who were dead in trespasses and sins, God has made alive together with Christ. That whole worldview that we call the Christian worldview is not compatible with either modernity or post-modernity. Just because one might be a little bit more close to the truth does not mean that we equate it with the gospel. And so when somebody comes up and says, you know, I'm uh, transgender, I'm something like this, the last thing I'm going to do is try to convince them with modernism that they're not really that because their body says this. What's happening in the minds of those who are in our culture, what's happening to our minds is an overemphasis of the spiritual. So the focus on the body is not going to do anything. You can speak to this person a thousand ways explaining chromosomal structures. You can explain body structures. You can explain purposes. Nothing's ever going to work. It's not going to work because the whole point of post-modernity is to destroy modernity. And so responding as Christians with modernism is a mistake. And yet it is 99% of the responses I see. You say, okay, so what is the response? What is the response to something like that as a Christian? This is where I'm going to put my teaching, my kind of more pastoral hat on. And say the Christian response to somebody making a claim that there are genders outside the binary of male and female, or that the uh, gender binary is a social construct that's oppressive and disconnected with the sex characteristics of men and women. The, the Christian response to that is to go back to what God said. Notice I'm not starting with our perception. Notice I'm not starting with cells and chromosomes. God has spoken is the central claim of the Christian worldview. God has told us how he designed us in the beginning. Not only did Jesus express this, the Old Testament bears this out straight up. He made us male and female. He gifted us roles, purposes, and a shared identity of the image of God. That is our identity. We are made in the image of God. 
And he gave us specific commandments in his word that assume men and women were created as a binary with the general design of reproduction. That doesn't mean if you're barren, you're not a real woman, or if you, you know, you can't make children or don't make children, you're not a real man or a real woman. It has nothing to do with that. It has a general design concept of reproduction. And the differences between us, male and female, are intended for the shared goal to glorify God, which looks different at different times and places, but there are basic concepts that are true for all times and places. That is where we start in the Christian worldview. That is where we start in the Christian worldview, not because it is convenient, but because that is what God has told us. Charles, you ask a question. You say, is it generally fair to say that when making or denying a claim, the modernist appeals to objectives and the postmodernist appeals to morality? So the modernists will appeal to objective truth. Yes, absolutely. Uh, repeatable um, testable, definable, um, observable things. Yes. Yeah, so it would be more of the objectives than that. You say that the postmodernist appeals to morality. The postmodernist won't appeal to morality directly because even using the term morality assumes, uh, an objective moral truth. You see how it kind of gets you everywhere. Um, the postmodernist will not appeal to morality. The postmodernist will appeal to perspective. Um, and that perspective will be a moral call. And this is kind of one of the, the um, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on the philosophy of this, but this is kind of one of the Achilles heels of postmodernity is that um, it's, it's most objective. It, the closest it ever gets to an objective truth is to say that you must support somebody else's perception. And that, that in and of itself is an objective moral claim um, that doesn't come from postmodernity. So regardless of such, it doesn't appeal to morality. Um, it does appeal to perception uh, at the at the height of it. Um, no, good question. Good question. Um, so the Christian response to postmodernity and how to interact with all these things is not to just rewind the tape back to modernity and say, boom, here's the answer. In fact, it has gone so far as uh, in some theologians' minds is to say, look, modernism built a Tower of Babel that post-modernity is rightly deconstructing and taking down again. That it was this idea that mankind can achieve and pursue his way all the way up to the heavens, define everything, define the universe, define the world in which he lives. And he will do this using only his own two hands and his brain. Um, and I, I read this theologian who was actually writing on that. Uh, and he just likened it to the Tower of Babel. What, what need have we of God? We can build our way up to heaven. And that kind of perception is not far off. Um, that as far as what modernity promised, we have no need of God. We can solve our own problems. We have no need of prayer. We have medicine. Not to say medicine's bad. Medicine's awesome. Medicine's great. Without medicine, several people I love wouldn't be alive right now. So I'm very grateful for these things. But in post-modernity, it is taking stones out of modernism, left and right, all over the place. And it, is, it literally calls itself deconstructionism uh, in order to do these things. Now, 
<clears throat> when we when we look at all of this as Christians, we kind of look at that and go, well, okay, so that explains why some of the things in the culture are doing this or doing that, right? That explains how it goes this way or goes that way, or maybe maybe some of the more eccentric movements of this or that. Um, the the problem is is that it it's not just defining things out there. There is severe and thorough impacts in theology and in church life. And most people don't even realize that this has happened. Let me give you some examples. One of the one of the interactions that it has had on church life. Let's just let's just do Christian living for a second, right? For 1900 years. Yeah, let me use this example. For 1900 years, it was clearly understood that the body upon death was to be taken care of and buried with honor and respect. Not because the body was still alive, not because that there was some specialness to uh, where you place this body or any such thing, but churches themselves were even designed with cemeteries next to them. How many churches today are built like that? How many, how many of us do we even look at that and go, oh, that would be something uh, in our designs that we should consider? Nobody does that. Nobody does that. You say, well, you know, maybe, you know, zoning codes and things like this. Okay, great, great. For 1900 years, the treatment of the bodies of Christians in the church was almost unanimously against the idea of cremation. Just as an example. In the past hundred years, our culture and many, many, many people in the church have completely and thoroughly 180 degreed their perspective on cremation. And there's not a lot of people talking about it. Why have we done this? You know, it doesn't even just show up in cremation because we think lesser of the body. We think it, we're done with this now. And the overemphasis on the, in the doctrine of last things of um, what the world to come looks like. All of this plays roles in these things. It is not to say if you're cremated, you do not be you know resurrected or any of that stuff. Of course you're resurrected. God made us from the dust of the ground. It's not about what the practical effects are. It's about what does it reveal about us? What does it reveal about the way we treat the body? What does it reveal about what our expectations are? Many Christians that I have known do not look at the body as something permanent but something to escape. And it shows up in the way we treat death. It shows up in our evangelism. You know, what were those questions of evangelism explosion we talked about last week? Do you know where you will go when you die? The question is purely a spiritual question. It's, it's talking about a, a spiritual destination when you die. 
so much has that focus come into the church that there's many Christians that are not even aware that there is a resurrection. They will have heard it in passing. But the references to the resurrection, the life eternal being one of bodily resurrection is so muted that many Christians think that when they die, they go to heaven to be with God, and that's the end of the story. Again, our culture's pendulum swing, violent pendulum swing, to the opposite side of the body is all that matters, the mind is all that matters, naturalistic, materialistic world is all that matters, to swing to the other side, no, just the spiritual astral form of who I am matters. I've heard it at so many funerals. Well, at, at least their suffering is over. As though we look at death as a good thing. Death is not a good thing. Ever in scripture is death looked at as a good thing. Death is the enemy. And it is only because these overemphases on the spiritual side of things that we look at it as a happy friend, perhaps. A real help. All of this is not to say that, you know, if your loved one was cremated, they won't, you know, raise from the dead or any of this. That's not true. That's not the way of it. The question is a matter of wisdom. The question is a matter of perception. How are we seeing ourselves when I die? I don't look at this body and saying, oh, finally, out of the body. I will say, praise the Lord of the universe who made a plan for when the unnatural thing called death happens to me, that he's still being absent from the body, has me present with him. Until the day of resurrection. And so the way that postmodernity has interacted with the church, even in the areas of death, even in the areas of evangelism, has us focusing on the spiritual almost always at the expense of the physical. And it shows up in everything. Look at our architecture of new churches being built. When was the last time you saw stained glass going in somewhere? Or the expression of building something just for the ornate beauty of it? Everything's utilitarian. Everything's pragmatic. Everything is about the spiritual almost always at the expense of the value of the physical. We don't have time or money or the efficiency to build beautiful things. We just want to build pragmatic things that just get the job done so we can all die and go to heaven. Obviously, I am overstating to make the emphasized point. In postmodernism, and this is why I say the church has been influenced by it to, to a, a degree that I don't think many people appreciate. Postmodernism has come into Christian theology like a bull that we deny even exists. But 
the effects of it are very deep. And it's not even just in those areas that are matters of Christian living and things like this, but it comes into the way that we understand and think about worship. What is worship? What are songs? What is the purpose of music? What is what is the level of uh, involvement of the laity versus the clergy, right? Trying to pit one as oppressors against the other. What, what of spiritual authority? Do pastors have authority in the church or is that an oppressive thing, right? Sermons that their main focus is not to rightly divide the word of truth. Their main focus is relevance to the local community. Worship practices, social concerns, social justice, community service at the expense of the gathered assembly sometimes. A very strong connection with the local community. People look at that and say, well, that's, that's, a, that's a great thing, right? It can be. It can also be a very bad thing. There's all manner of effects. Again, things, good, bad. That's not the initial call. The initial call is to say, well, what is the purpose of the church? And you will find the effect in a lot of uh, postmodern churches will be almost an allergy against any liturgical structure at all, whether in the service, in the polity, uh, the governance of the church, or anything of the sort. A focus on creativity over tradition. Not even over tradition, just even scripture itself. An emphasis on dialogue over doctrine. You know, let's let's talk about things. How? What's your perception of these things? It shows up in Bible studies, where someone will come up and say, you know, well, this, you know, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? Rather than here's what the Word of God says. That that is postmodernism doing its work. Uh, again, is that a bad thing? It can be. It can be a helpful thing too. So you understand where people are coming from. This is one of the reasons why I ask questions often when I'm teaching in person. I ask questions often because I want to know where the people that I'm teaching are coming from. So I know how to interact with them. That's not a bad thing. Um, but there can be, in, in some of these pursuits, there can be an overemphasis on this that ends up overselling the importance of experience. And so you will find even the effect on types of music focused far more on experience than on truth. And truth, I mean, with a capital T. I mean, as Christians, we claim to follow the one who is claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life. And so there is a, there is a certain um, claim in Christianity to not only objective truth and statements about it, but there's also a claim in Christianity that there is a value in this that is above something that I can just perceive. And the biggest thing that's going to uh, harm the Christian approach uh, in, in the future, or at least the perception of the Christian approach in the future to this culture specifically, is our exclusive claims on truth. It was the same thing for which Rome began persecuting the Christians. They were just fine if you wanted to serve Christ and their gods. There's no problem with that. As long as you say Caesar is Lord, as long as you say the Emperor Domitian is Lord, as long as you worship the gods, you can also worship Jesus. We have no problem with that. 
And the Christians, the early Christians, as we started that way back when, looked at that and says, no, we have an exclusive claim of truth with Christ. Not just claim of truth, but of reality itself that is going to impose itself on you at the end of days. Repent and believe in the gospel. God has given assurance that he will judge the world by raising Christ from the dead. The importance of the spiritual, the importance of the body, the importance both ways, along these ways. This is, for many aspects of the Roman world, what the Romans found particularly atrocious about Christians. Not only will they not defend themselves when they are persecuted and when they are thrown out to be martyred, which is just atrocious. They didn't see that as a good thing at all. But they make these exclusive claims on truth in the religious category and in the life category. And so when when the Romans would perceive this, it was perceived as an invasive and harmful thing. We aren't far off of that in this culture, by the way. And this is one of the reasons why I say these types of things have happened throughout history multiple times. This is not the first time where... um, this kind of deconstruction of things has taken place, or this kind of claim on perception truth uh, is the order of the day. It's happened many times in history. And every single time, Christians have to stand up that and say, no, it's not just about our perception. You know, Christ is not one God among many. We, we cannot abide just a simple tolerance and no proselytization in a pluralistic society. It doesn't work like that. We can't do that. We have to preach Christ and him crucified, even if the government says no. We see that borne out in the apostles' approach to preaching. We see that borne out in the way that they would even speak to philosophers. They said to the the philosophers on Mars Hill, on the Areopagus, you know, your philosophers have gotten so much of this right. In in God, we live and we move and we have our being. Right? It, uh, physical, spiritual, full compendium existence, the whole of everything that we are. But they kind of missed the whole point about Christ. And this is, this is some of those conflicts between Christianity and postmodernism that we really have to keep in mind, that we have to address somehow um, the, the rejections of things in postmodernity, for instance, of grand narratives. And there's, there's, in the Christian worldview, we talk about the fall, or excuse me, we talk about creation, we talk about the fall, we talk about the cross, we talk about the consummation of the age, the end of the world the recreation of heavens and earth. That is a grand narrative that makes truth claims about history, about future, about morality, about now, about death, hope, faith, everything. That is a grand narrative. And if there's anything that postmodernity hates more than that, uh, or more than uh, modernism, it is full statements of grand narratives. Uh, Very skeptical of grand narratives. Anything that is an overarching uh, story that explains the nature of reality, it's perceived as an oppressive thing. And so Christians have to understand when we preach the gospel and we make these claims like Jesus is the only hope, when we make claims that in death there is only one name under heaven by which you can be saved, when we say 
God is not the God of this religion and that religion and that religion. And all the religions are just worshiping the same God by a different name. We have to say, no, that's not the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is a grand narrative. It also has the, the benefit of being true. And so because of that, we have to proclaim it as it stands. We cannot just go out and pretend that it's not making grand claims when it truly is. Postmodern skepticism against grand narratives is a massive blow to the preaching of the gospel if we give into it. Can't do that. It cannot just be about here's something to add on to your life to make it better. And I, I cannot tell you how many churches I hear sermons just like that. Here's how to be a better Christian. Here's how to live a better life. Here's how to do this. Here's how to do that. This is not Christian teaching. That is postmodern teaching. Here's how this can help you in your perceived reality. Is not the gospel. And opening our minds up to everything will cause the same kind of problems, but on a whole nother level that opening our minds to modernity did. And this is one thing that both myself and postmodernists can fully agree on. Modernism was not the answer. It wasn't the answer in the 1700s. It isn't the answer in the 2000s. It's, it is not the answer today in the 21st century any more than it was the answer in the first century. It has never been the answer. It was a cultural, philosophical movement that did some pretty cool stuff, and it did some really horrible stuff. Postmodernity is no different. It does do some really cool stuff. There are some strengths to it. There are some strengths in pulling back modernism from some of its ridiculous claims of objective truth just by testing and measuring things. That's not sufficient for a human to live under. It, it strips us from our value and our dignity, and postmodernity is trying to rebuild that back up. Now, I will say also as a Christian, postmodernity goes to the wrong goal because its entire movement, at least currently, is defined as a rejection against all things modern. And its full-on embrace of things like Marxism in the cultural categories really becomes problematic, uh, to say the least, um, to welcome straight into the Christian worldview. You just can't do that and still claim that you value life. This really has a challenge for the church ahead because how we engage culture, how we engage the communities in which we live, we cannot say somehow that the thing that holds our town together is that we all live in our town. That That's just not a sufficient enough thing for a church to say, the reason I serve this town is because I live in this town. That's, that's a very postmodernist way of looking at these things. We should instead look at responsibilities of the Christian life, wherever we are, are this and this and this. Apply them as needed. We cannot define ourselves as uh, purely the church that serves this community or that community. It's why you're finding churches that, that crop up that have specific focuses, right? There was a church in town that um, had this whole um, ad campaign, uh, we're the church to the unchurched. 
first of all, that has theological issues all on its own, but that's trying to spin the church to serve a specific community. And you can hear it in there. Uh, that's post-modernity at work. It's, it's trying to address one community, the so-called unchurched, and becoming a supporter of their perceived truth and or their perceived hurts, real or not, is relevant, at least as far as for this is concerned. It's That's their perception. That's where they're at. And you see a lot of people trying to argue that this is actually a, a specific ways uh, of addressing these things. Oh, uh, Nathaniel, you ask a question. What are some examples of the horrors of modernism specifically? Um, let me give you three. And uh, there's several more, but I'll give you three just to, um, just to wet the whistle on this one. Um, one, eugenics. Two, all of the ways, the new ways of killing ourselves in World War One and World War Two, everything from mustard gas to atomic weapons to things like this, all of these are from modernity. the The whole approach to um, uh, using science and applying the modernist worldview to a destruction of the body. Um, those would be the, the destructive sides of things. On the philosophical side of things, the destruction that modernity works is to uh, interact with humanity as though he were nothing but a physical being, um, which is not a sufficient way to interact with the world. If we, if we look at um, humanity as just physical people, uh, there will be no appreciation for all of the spiritual sides of who we are. It, it caused us to be able to uh, think our way out of things like guilt. But the problem is, is through observation, we've learned that we can't actually get away from guilt by simply denying it exists because it's not a thing of matter. Um, interacting with humanity as though we are just a bunch of bodies and just natural material beings uh, destroys any higher concept of who we are. And it shows up in every identity issue that we have. Almost every identity crisis comes from looking at humans as though they are not what they actually were created to be. A body, spirit, unity, the soul. Um, you know, so... Those would be two examples. Eugenics, uh, if you're not familiar, eugenics was the wiping out of those who were, uh, quote, undesirables in order to speed along the evolution of the human race. Uh, we were going to take out, and, and it just depends on where you are and who you're talking to, uh, we'll take out uh, those who were of a different race of us that we would view unworthy. Um, this is where Nazism looked at the Aryan race as the ultimate and the Jewish race as those who were holding us back. And so the destruction of the Jews was directly out of a modernist concept of the world. Um, so too was abortion uh, and its modern concepts brought into the world. Uh, and post-modernity has taken abortion and just inherited it and and uh uses an expression that's why the it's why the wording on it is always uh, kind of wordplay um you know human uh um what is it women's reproductive rights rather than just speaking to it what it is um all of this to say is 
um, the horrors of modernity have much to do with separating out a definition of human of humans uh, in any spiritual sense, and then leaving them to hang just as bodies. Um, so those those are some of those. And and again, there was a lot of great stuff about modernism too. Don't don't get me wrong. I mean, cars, airplanes, trains, all this kind of stuff. Really fantastic things. That, you know. A factory and all this kind of stuff. But there's others who will look at that and say, you know, that's taken away from us the value of our labor. We're just like a cog in a wheel somewhere, or, or we, we just push a single button at a factory over and over again. We don't have any full connection. This is one of the claims of Karl Marx. We don't have any real connection to the, to the output of our labor. It's just we're paid for our time and then nothing else really has any meaning or purpose or value. And so um, we look at work as though it's just a requirement and there's nothing interesting or fascinating about our life giving. It's just what you have to do in order to live. Uh, modernism really did kind of go, I wouldn't put that in the horrors of modernism category, but I would put it in the, one of the negative effects is it really did separate us from uh, the gift that work actually is. Um, okay, let's get into just a, one last thing here, um, and that is the emphasis on experience and subjectivity. Um, and then, and then we will actually end this. We actually, I went a little bit over time because I I could see that I was going to be able to finish this, and I want to keep it in one lecture. So that's that's good. Um, so bear with me this last five minutes. This there is a huge emphasis uh, in postmodernity on obviously, as you can see, on experience and on subjectivity, right? Um, you'll see it in the way that we use this word, right? We want a, a, a subjective view of the world. It's, it's our perception of the world. Um, and you will see it in the way that people actually refer to this, whether in feminist theologies, which is one of the postmodern theologies, um, you know, this, this idea that, you know, don't objectify a woman. Don't make her the object, make her the subject. You see this? Don't be objective about this. Be subjective about this. Don't don't object her. Uh, but there is a there is a uh, understanding that just as a subject uh, fixates uh, on the object, um, you should not, like in modernity, make this an object of study. But it's the subject. Go up and listen to this person, right? And so if if I'm um, well, let's let's put it in terms that aren't so dicey. Um, let's put it in terms of this way. If I am objectifying somebody, I'm studying them removed from who they are value-wise and assessing them from my side. I'm putting myself in the subject category. In postmodernism, there is a very uh, specific attempt at interacting with people as they are their own subjects rather than they are your object. You see the difference? Uh, and and this emphasis on that means that we have to take into account where they are at, what their subjective experience is. And uh, in postmodernism, it places a very strong emphasis on this. And so that informs a number of things, not only things like how we uh, do songs in church and all this kind of stuff. We want to make everything about how what effect Jesus has had on me. We really don't like songs in the postmodern world uh, about, you know, the objective truths about the cross or something like this, right? Uh, and so there's more of a, you know, uh, I'm saved. That's great for me. Here's the effects of this. Uh, I, I can't believe how 
uh, good that makes me feel to have that solved, that kind of thing. I don't, that's that's a horrible song, but you you see the effect. It, so um, in in that overemphasis, I would argue on experience and subjectivity, um, it really comes in conflict when we when we make objective truth claims inside Christianity that are undeniable for us. We we cannot just individualize our faith. It's not. And I don't say we can't individualize our faith. We certainly can, but we cannot just individualize our faith and make us the subjects. When in reality, the whole teaching of the gospel is that we aren't the subjects. We are the objects. God is the subject. And so this is one of the things that um, that modernity and postmodernity both get wrong. They make God the object. Both of them do modernity will study God as if he is a creature in the forest from afar and make claims about him and never actually have it affect them. In post-modernity, they don't make any real claims about God. They just, they focus on the person. The person is the subject. They're the most important. So whatever they perceive about God is, is, is much as we're going to go. We're not going to make any real claims about God himself. But in the Christian worldview, both of those are wrong. God is the subject and we are the object. God loves us. God made us. God is glorified in the creation of man. All of that is to say the Christian worldview is not a matter of modernity, nor is it a matter of postmodernity. The Christian worldview is neither of those. Those are both philosophical, cultural perspectives. The Christian worldview is completely different. And so Christians, learn what postmodernity is and learn how to respond to it as a Christian because your natural inclination to resisting it is going to be going back to modernity. Don't do that. When somebody comes up to you and says, I'm transgender this, don't you dare respond with things like chromosomes. You best respond with what the scripture says about our value, about our purpose, about our identity, and about the glory of God. That is how we respond. You say, well, they don't share the same you know, perspective on authority. I don't care. Well, it does not matter. It doesn't change the message because the hearer doesn't agree with the authority of the one speaking. It's irrelevant. And that is going to mean that Christians are less popular than you'd probably prefer. But the reality is either God has given us his clear spoken word or he hasn't. And if he has, then we have a fealty to that before any hearer may. And so that is my last encouragement, Christians, to you all. Understand post-modernity. Because you're going to have to interact with this on one level or another, and you already have, whether you know it or not. And it is it has its dangerous sides, and it has its helpful effects. Regardless of that, it is the culture in which we live, and it's going to be something that we have to interact with with a certain degree of wisdom. Um, if you feel confused after this, um, welcome to the world of postmodernity. Uh, we are still trying to figure everything out, and we are still trying to account for it. But as we move forward into this, I promise we will still have the word of God and it will still move on, whether we fully understand or not how it does these things. 
Um, Lord's blessings to you all. I'll be back in several weeks and uh, hopefully with some ideas uh, towards uh, some new directions. This does wrap up our walkthrough uh, chronologically of church history. Um, for those of you who have been along for the, I think it's about 80 episodes, um, uh, you know, my my condolences and my encouragement to you all. Um, and uh, as I can say with, with a monk who uh, put his postscript at the end of one of his manuscripts, um, the end has come. Thanks be to God. Uh, my prayers are with you all. Uh, Lord's blessings. I'll see you in a few weeks and we're going to do some deep dives. Uh, and I'll talk to you a lot more about that uh, when I see you in three weeks. We'll be back August 30th. Uh, Lord's blessings. See you all then.